Neither the United States of America nor the world community of nations can tolerate deliberate deception. But I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. I did not trade arms for hostages. Welcome to Revealed, putting public records in the public eye. I'm your host, Hannah Markley, and I'm here to tell the stories that we found out the hard way through public records and FOIA requests. It's not often that you have a public record story that is truly a life or death issue. But that's what we have here today with a story of Carl Hu and the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund. Every dollar donated, about 40 to 50 cents was ending up in the pocket of the president of the telemarketing company, who was also the president of the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund. That's Carl. Carl and his friend and accountant, Ed Clark, figured out exactly what was happening using public records and took that information to the Secretary of State of the State of Washington, the Attorney General, the IRS, and anybody who would listen, trying to make sure that the money actually went where it was supposed to go to help women who were facing breast cancer. That this charity was not operated for charitable purposes. It was operated for the benefit of the organizer. It's, it's a statistical certainty. There's at least one woman that didn't get screened that died from cancer. In the interest of full disclosure, Ed is also my accountant, and that's how I met Carl. But they're two of a kind, two men who just couldn't stand to see money that was supposed to go to help people used to enrich a crook. My wife had been recently diagnosed with breast cancer, but it been, fortunately it was caught early. And uh, so she received, uh, you know, chemotherapy and it was all successful. And she's been free of cancer ever since. And my sister also had a more serious case of it at that time. So um, that was, you know, my first exposure to breast cancer uh, and to see that my wife and my sister had both had close calls with it. Um, And because of that, I was... uh, you know, more open to the cause. I, I certainly, my wife and I uh, were giving money to like the American Cancer Society and things like that um, because we could definitely see uh, that there were women who would benefit from this. Carl was a soft-hearted guy, which made him receptive to this organization, the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund. But they got more than they bargained for when they first called Carl to ask him for money. When did you first hear about the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund specifically? It was about six months after my wife had completed her chemotherapy treatments. And uh, uh, I received the phone call. And normally, you know, it was very clear as a phone solicitation, they identified themselves as the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund. And normally I would, I would you know, say we don't accept phone solicitations and hang up at that point, but because they said it was breast cancer, uh, they explained to me that they were different in that uh, they raised money for women who could not afford uh, to have a mammogram, a life-saving screening, and that all the money that they raised would go towards this cause uh, so that women who couldn't afford it could get it. And that appeal, uh, you know, struck my heart. What made you start to question um, Breast Cancer Prevention's fund legitimacy? Um, 
you know, a, a few weeks after that call, I received a, uh, a little postcard uh, asking for me to send in my pledge. And uh, it, it was a little thing, but they asked for me to chip in $3 to pay for postage. <laughs> it just struck me, well, why, why would you need $3 to, to, to pay for postage? And so I brought, pulled them up on the internet to see uh, who they actually were. And uh, some people had also become suspicious and had found out that the president of the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund was also the owner of the company making the telemarketing calls. And uh, so it was when I saw that in uh, these forums, an alarm bell sounded, sounded off in my head because that sounded totally contrary to the assurances they gave me that all of this money was going to go strictly to you know, provide mammogram for uh, women who couldn't afford it. I, I knew that if a telemarketing company was involved, that couldn't possibly be the case. And you know, they have such a blatant conflict interest, conflict of interest. I mean, it was so outrageous. I didn't even know if it was true. <laughs> if I hadn't seen that three dollars to cover postage, I think I would have just sent in, sent in my check. But there's just something that seemed odd about uh, asking for that extra three bucks. So that that extra three bucks they asked for, I think, ended up costing them a lot of money in the end. Do you have any background in this kind of investigation? No, but you know, I'm I'm an engineer, you know, <laughs> and uh, engineers are inherently problem solvers. So after you saw that on the forums, what was your next step to kind of suss out what was happening here? What I was finding in the forum was that people could basically just scratch the surface of what this organization was. I went as far as I could on the internet, but I found, like I said, there were limits, the amount of information that was available there. So um, I then went to the uh, state of Washington charities website, and that was probably the first time I've used that, but I was aware of the fact that state of Washington, Secretary of State um, does provide a website that uh, anybody can go to, and they have information about every registered charity in the state of Washington. In fact, uh, the Secretary of State at that time used to rank uh, the various charities and they had a top 10 list that they would publish every year, the most efficient charities, the ones who gave the highest percentage uh, to the charity. And the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund was consistently in that top 10 list. Um, and the website has some basic information about the charities, what their, you know, what their names are and how much money uh, they bring in, but there isn't a lot of depth to that information. So to get down to the next level, I knew what I had to do is ask the Secretary of State to provide, you know, all the documents so I could see exactly what the relationship was between legacy telemarketing and the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund, because that information simply wasn't it wasn't on the website. You may be thinking, this is kind of a weird topic for a public records request, but really charities have to report their information to the government so that they can be regulated by us, the consumers and donors, rather than the government itself. Ed explains it a little better. Well, charities report their financial information to the public so that the public is aware of what the charity does with its donations. 
So Carl knew where to look. He knew where to try to find the records he needed to understand the relationship between the telemarketing company that was wholly owned by the president of the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund and the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund. So he made his first ever public records request. Yeah, I think I went to their website and and saw, um, you know, if you need records, uh, please contact our public information officer. I'm not sure if I called them or sent them an email, but I basically just said, send me everything you got. But Carl knew that it wasn't just the Secretary of State who would have the records that he needed. I contacted the IRS, and every year, every uh, charitable organization, a 501c3 is what they call them, um, they are required to file what's called a Form 990. My own uh, personal CPA is at Clark and Redmond, and you know, when this was happening, I said, Ed, I don't really understand all this Form 990, 501c3. Ed thinks that Carl is being a little modest here. He is so smart. I'm not sure why I do his tax return. So I'm, I'm pretty sure why I do his tax return is because his wife doesn't want to watch him read the Internal Revenue Code. Ed explained what the purpose of a 990 was and everything that should be on it. and showed exactly how deficient the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund's 990s had been. There's a requirement that that transactions between a charity and an insider of the charity, like the executive director would be an insider. There's a requirement that um, transactions between insiders and the charity be disclosed on the IRS Form 990, which the charity uses to report its activities to the, to the government. It's, it's required to be disclosed because the government's very interested in a non-quid pro quo transaction where the insider maybe gets what is called an excess economic benefit. Um, and the failure to disclose the transaction um, is actually what they call an automatic excess economic benefit. So if you don't disclose it, you don't even get the chance to argue. So the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund's 990s failed to disclose that the insider, James Patton, was using the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund to enrich himself through his business. And also, they claimed that 90% of their expenses were related to the underlying mission of preventing breast cancer. But that can't be true. But approximately 90% of their expenditures as program service expenditures. Well... That's kind of hard to do when 75 or 80% of the money, I think it was 80% of the money went to the fundraiser. And, and the filings, the yearly filings, between the information from the Secretary of State's office and the IRS for 990s, it became crystal clear what was actually going on here. 80% of the money was, was trimmed directly off the top and went to the telemarketing company about 50 to 60% of the money was then going to uh, the owner of the telemarketing company, okay, who is also the president of the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund. Wow, you, you would think that a, uh, a government regulator or the IRS or somebody would have, would have put this together beforehand. It's pretty remarkable that this, this took your um, initiative to be discovered. You know, uh, I... I, and I think that's absolutely spot on, Hannah, that you would think 
that in this case, the state of Washington provide this basic information uh, that they would also be uh, making sure what they're reporting is actually correct. And that was one of the things I quickly found out is that's not the case, right? All they are there is to take the information in, record it, and then post it for the public. So Carl and Ed have the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund dead to rights. So the question is, what do you do with that information? Obviously, they take it to the Secretary of State and the IRS. But as you'll hear in a little bit, that wasn't the most satisfying answer. And also, there's another bad guy out there. Underneath every white-collar crime is a crooked bean counter. More on that after the break. Hey y'all, I hope you're enjoying the show. I got involved with Open Records because of my time on the board with the Washington Coalition for Open Government. WashCog is an incredible organization. They only have one employee and a board of really active volunteers. If you could help support the mission of Washington Coalition for Open Government, I would really appreciate it. See a link in the podcast notes. Welcome back. So we know that the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund is hiding information about their relationship with the telemarketing company that does their fundraising and lying about the amount of money that they raise that actually goes to preventing breast cancer. And now it was time to pay the piper. Ed and Carl had uncovered the truth and they took that information to the authorities. I filed a complaint with the IRS and a year and a half later, they immediately investigated it and they looked at it and it was very clear to them what was going on and they uh, revoked their 501c3 status um, because it was very clear that uh, the breast cancer prevention fund was not set up to benefit the public it was set up primarily to benefit one person which was you know the person who owned the telemarketing company and because of that, uh, they revoked their 501c3. And then once that happened, their board of directors uh, all resigned and the company went into bankruptcy. When a company goes into bankruptcy, it's kind of like that company dies. And the estate, the assets that the company had are now available to be claimed by other people. Ed goes into a little more detail. In bankruptcy, um, the... The bankrupt entity is no longer in charge of its own affairs. The bankrupt entity's affairs are um, are uh, uh, controlled by the trustee in bankruptcy. So it's the trustee that evaluates the creditor claims and settles those. And, and it's also the trustee who's in charge of marshalling all the assets of the bankruptcy estate. This guy who owned the telemarketing company, um, at that point, had made millions and millions of dollars, right? He had benefited himself, uh, I would guess, well over $5 million, way more than was given out for breast cancer grants, okay? And he could have walked away with all that um, because at that time, the IRS was satisfied with just shutting them down. And they, we, they weren't really going to go after him uh for tax fraud um i don't know why but that was the deal 
So the only thing that was left was this half million dollars sitting in the checking account of this bankrupt charity. And um, at that time, uh, two parties made claims for that money. One party was the Washington State Attorney Generals. They claimed that all $20 million that they had brought in was done through fraudulent claims and therefore any funds remaining should go to the Attorney General so they could return it um, to various agencies to buy those mammograms they were meant to do, right? So that was one claim. If you can believe it, the other claim was put in by the owner of the telemarketing company. He had the gall, he had the gall to claim that he had not been fully paid for his services, right? And that since he was the one who had signed the contract with the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund, he was a, a priority debtor and he should be first in line to be paid. And he claimed that that half million dollars would just barely cover the amount that was due to him. You heard that right. The guy who had stolen all this money was saying that the little bit that was left in the bankrupt charity's account was also his. So, um, so there were these two claims and this one in the bankruptcy court. And uh, right before they met, they had the hearing for this, the attorney general and this telemarketing, the president of the telemarketing came to an agreement. Um, that they would split the, the half million dollars. The IRS would take its cut um, and then they would split whatever was left. And which sounds surely outrageous, right? Because at that point, the Washington State Attorney General had said that they, uh, that they had taken $20 million for fraudulent activities and now they're willing to settle for half of whatever was left. And, um, you know, so Ed Clark and I were both very frustrated Carl sees this and you'll have to edit this part. He goes back crazy. <laughs> I mean, he's calling everybody he can think of. But since both of the parties who have claims to that money have agreed to the settlement, Carl and Ed didn't really think there was anything they could do. We are at a loss. So I think there was 90 days or 120 days or whatever it was. Um, before this agreement could be finalized, and uh, and I, I, you know, I think we're just hosed. Um, but then I go down to Carson Valley, Nevada, uh, where a buddy of mine runs a uh, charitable golf tournament for the Carson Valley Boys and Girls Club. Um, I uh, turn to um, this woman, Denise Mavis, and I said, Denise. We've met before. I remember you're an attorney, uh, but I don't remember what kind of law you practice. And Denise says, I'm a bankruptcy lawyer. <laughs> and I go, wow, I might I have a couple questions. I might have a matter for you. And I start to tell her the breast cancer prevention fund story. And Denise points her finger at her chest, like her sternum and goes, I'm the best bankruptcy attorney in Seattle and I can help you. Denise and Ed figure out that there's an asset that the trustee has not put together for this bankruptcy case. That asset is a claim against the CPA firm who should 
have done a better job spot-checking the 990s and other filings that were wrongly claiming that the money was actually going to help people with breast cancer and hiding the information about the relationship between the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund and the telemarketing company. I was expecting to see some podunk CPA firm's name on this, and it turns out that it wasn't a street corner outfit. It was, you know, Clark Newber, um, the largest vendor to the nonprofit industry for CPA services west of the Mississippi at the time. Um, I mean, they count among their clients, the Gates Foundation, or they counted among their clients, the Gates Foundation, and I'm sure other high profile charities. And in this case, one of the assets was this potential malpractice claim against the CPA firm. Ed found this particularly upsetting, given how well he knew the firm, Clark Newber. So I asked my own CPA, Ed Clark, about it and said, Do you, have you heard of, ever heard of Clark Newber? And he said, heard of them? That Clark is my dad. <laughs> By having this huge CPA firm's name attached to their filings, the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund gained legitimacy and probably slipped under the radar at this big firm. I mean, it wasn't a big account for them. But Ed and Carl believed that the CPA firm had an obligation to do a better job making sure those reports were accurate and showed the relationship between Mr. Patton and the two companies at issue. It also shouldn't have claimed that 90% of the funds actually went to prevent breast cancer. But that still didn't solve the problem that the Attorney General's office had already agreed to settle. Luckily, Denise had a solution for that too. So she looks at it and she says, you know, all of those donors have a potential creditor claim. So without notifying the donors, this is a, a, a failure of due process. Next thing I know, Denise has, has trotted me into court because it would be community property that, that had been donated by my wife, who's a 32-year breast cancer survivor herself, by the way. Um, yeah, anyway. So um, the judge agrees with Denise. Ed brought his own attorney to the hearing and told the judge, essentially, Your Honor, every single person, and there are hundreds of thousands of them who gave any money to the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund, should get the opportunity to have their money back before this guy sees another dime, because he's already taken all of this money from the public. Well, the bankruptcy judge agreed with Ed's attorney and said, look, I'm not going to okay this. You, until you actually go out and prove to me that you've actually gone out, contacted every person who ever gave money to this and offered them their money back. Okay, you go off and do that and then come back to me and then, and then we'll talk, right? But I'm not going to approve the settlement the way it is. And that completely blew up, you know, the agreement between the attorney general and, uh, and the uh, telemarketing president to uh, the glee of, you know, Ed, myself, and the attorney. So Ed, Carl, and Denise approach the trustee who's managing the estate of the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund and pitch their ideas. First, they tell him, you should go after Clark Newber, who filed these faulty reports. And second, 
you should try to get the money back from that jerk who took it all in the first place. The uh, bad guy, James Patton, uh, had entered or he had made a uh, declaration in which he said that he was absolutely innocent, that he never did anything that his CPA firm didn't tell him to do. So Denise and I thought that that declaration raised the question of uh, liability for the CPA firm. And I don't know how you can even just have 30,000 feet just what Carl got from public records, you can tell it's wrong. I don't know how they, I mean, they convinced themselves, Clark Newber convinced themselves that they were um, performing in accordance to standards, but. There's an attorney assigned to represent the estate, right? And um, Ed and I had approached that attorney before and told them all about what was going on here. So that wasn't interesting to the uh, bankruptcy attorney before this, but now that the judge had told him no deal, it became very interesting, right? And so the bankruptcy uh, attorney then uh, hired uh, a very prominent Seattle law firm. Although Carl was particularly angry at James Patton, most of Ed's ire seems to be directed at the CPA firm Clark Newber. Unfortunately, the Secretary of State I don't know if it's unfortunate or not, but the Secretary of State, in this case, uh, relied on the audited financial statements prepared by um, Clark Newber. And I think they have the right to do that because the CPA is supposed to be doing this stuff correctly. Um, and, and, you know, and so somebody along the way tried to blame the Secretary of State's office that they accepted it, but it's the CPA who's responsible. So my dad is the clerk of Clark Newber. And, and, you know, and, and I've known Bob Newber since 1968, right? So that's a long time. Um, Bob won't speak to me now. Ed explained to me that it's really hard to enforce these kinds of regulations on accounting firms because the law itself is very complicated. And also because getting an expert witness to testify against another CPA isn't easy to do. He says finding someone willing to step out and speak out against someone else in the profession is not easy. I mean, CPAs generally don't like testifying against other CPAs. I'm, I don't like it either, but, you know, the CPA profession is a profession of financial transparency. And it's supposed to be, we're supposed to be scorekeepers, right? Tallying up the numbers, rendering objective reports were not supposed to be taking people's sides and aiding and abetting a you know huge fraud on the public um, we're, we're in fact supposed to be um, upholding the public's interest in financial transparency so what was so wrong with the way Clark Newber was filing the 990s on behalf of the breast cancer prevention fund well, that goes back to the claim that the breast cancer prevention fund was using 90 percent of its income, to serve its public purpose. As the Secretary of State's website said, they were ranked very highly for the return on investment for how much of the money actually went to serving the public. But we know that wasn't true. So what gives? The reason it was over 90% is they used this very 
weird accounting rule, what they, what they, what they thought was an accounting rule, where they took the telemarketing script that they read to me and they counted the words in that script and there are approximately 300 words in the script, right? And their claim was that over 90% of the words in this script was about the breast cancer prevention fund. You can see how ridiculous that is, right? But this is what, uh, what they were using. And that was probably one of the biggest discoveries I made with where this claim is coming from. So Clark Newber was claiming that because 90% of the words in the script were talking about the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund and not asking for money, then 90% of the money that was paid to the telemarketing company who read that script was considered program services, even though it had nothing to do with providing mammograms. That's not quite as crazy of a claim as it sounds like Clark Newber was making, but it's pretty close. Ed explains. When a charity uses a medium for mixed purposes, fundraising and uh, charitable tax exempt purposes, if they have a um, dual purpose activity, they have to have a pure charitable message in the same medium um, that is substantially equivalent in um, scope, size, and impact. You can see how this might make sense in the context of a mailer, for example, where you send out information about the topic that your charity promotes, and then on the last page, you ask for a donation. Only the part that asks for a donation is actually fundraising. The rest is educational and serves the purpose of the charity. But as Ed points out, this has to be something that you do regularly, something that you have a purely altruistic motive for doing other times when you do it. And they didn't have one. So it is clearly wrong. So that's the analysis, as seen by Ed, and also as seen by the IRS. The only thing left to do is to see what the expert witness thinks and see if we can get a court to agree. Completely agreed with, you know, my opinion and the Internal Revenue Service. Um, um, but uh, um, that guy had some health issues. And so um, uh, uh, Williams Kastner did not um pursue trial they settled we couldn't get back 10 million dollars but i think we did recover something on the order of four million dollars which um to put this into perspective this is probably the largest uh settlement ever reached in the case of this kind where you have fraudulent charity four million dollars actually got paid out and after all of the attorney fees and everything else is paid out i think about two and a half million dollars ended up going to pay for mammograms. And so there were you know, many thousands of mammograms that were paid for uh, with that money. So that was a happy ending in my book. So that's the story of the Breast Cancer Prevention Fund. Several thousand mammograms were bought with the money that was recovered by Carl and Ed, really. It's not the most satisfying ending, but it's better than what could have happened if Carl hadn't investigated and hadn't made use of the public records available to him through the Secretary of State's office and the IRS. Public records are important, 
Listen next week for more stories about how public records can be used to make our world a little bit better. I'm your host, Hannah Markley, and I look forward to seeing you next time.